All right, Pete Giuliano, it is Sunday, the 13th of January, 2019. That makes this... 209, Ralph. 209, Ralph. All right, excellent. The, the snow is falling, the winter has set in, and uh, I have the shack, the, the heating in the shack now is being augmented by a DX100, Hammerland HQ100, Helicrafters HT37, Drake 2B. They are all putting out some Ooh. BTUs, I guess. Ooh. That's why they call it a shack warmer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it gives this really nice smell, too. I mean, it's a generational yeah. thing. But, uh, hey, Pete, I want to start out. With the, the straight key night story. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, go ahead. Let, go let ahead, me start. Go ahead, go ahead. All right. So, you know, I, I am, uh, into straight key night in a way that you are not. You know, you. Right. You, yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. CW. Pete has moved on. And, uh, well, I have this nostalgia thing. So a few weeks before straight key night, I decided I better fire up the HT37 than Drake 2B. Normally my go-to rig for, uh, straight key night. And, well, it turned out that the HT37 was, it had been wheezing and kind of struggling the year before, and now it was totally out. But anyway, that's that's another story. I'll tell you that in a minute. But anyway, I threw some heroic efforts on the part of radio amateur friends around the, the country and around the world, including uh, Steve Murphy and 8M. NM. We'll talk about him in a minute. I got the HT37 and the Drake 2B going. Now, Straight Key Night comes along. It's New Year's Eve. Now, this is always kind of a, a difficult time to be operating as a radio amateur because there are competing demands. The family, friends, social events, they're all trying to pull you away. The other thing is it starts at New Year's at the stroke of midnight, Greenwich Mean Time, Universal Coordinated Time, which means it starts at what, like 8 o'clock, Right, four or five hours now. No, so, oh, you yeah, e- yeah. E- eight hours. No, no, but it's 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 it's. I yeah, think for me, it's like five hours off. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. it starts like seven or eight o'clock at night on New Year's Eve, right? So you only have, you've only got a few hours on New Year's Eve, and then it continues through New Year's Day the next morning. But to be in keeping with the tradition, you really want to get that those contacts made kind of on New Year's Eve. So I got into the shack. And I fired the rig up on 80 meters CW, kind Ooh. of an unusual place for me. Not my not my, not my normal electromagnetic hangout. 80 meters CW, but it was straight key night, and sure enough, as the hour approached, the band kind of perked up. There were a lot of a lot of signals there, and I started making a few contacts, and it was okay. It was fun. I was using uh, the key that Farhan gave me, the VU3 XVR straight key. That far oh, handle. Yeah, that's really made out of wood. Really cool looking. It's got this kind of red knob at the end. I got a picture of it up on the blog. But uh, I made a few contacts, and I was just about to turn away from the rig because Elisa was calling me and telling us me that we were, we were going to go off someplace. And I hear a fairly faint signal calling, and I figured, okay, I'll give this guy a report. I'll get one more log, one more contact in the log, and then we'll, we'll go off and do whatever we're going to do that evening. And the call sounded familiar. It should have been a lot more familiar because it's somebody that we know very well. But I guess it was the unfamiliar mode, 80 meters, CW, the unfamiliar band, 80 meters, kind of poor conditions. I was kind of distracted by all the New Year's Eve nonsense. 
And anyway, I, I just, I remember I sent to the guy, your call sounds familiar, but I have to QRT, so you are SKN, you know, I think it was like 439 or something like that. It was kind of marginal. Um, thanks for the contact, old man. And then he comes back, and he gives me my report, but then he says, um, and I wrote it down because I'm, I'm keeping notes on the contacts, and I wrote it down because, and with a big question mark next to it because I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. He said something like, find business on the HT37, and then there's a pause, and it comes over on CW. Rig has lots of presence. <laughs> presence. <laughs> and I'm, I, I was, I guess I was, I, I, maybe I was kind of, kind of messed up by the whole straight key night thing because I should have put two or two together, but I didn't. And I thought, because the, the, the HT37 was drifting a little bit and it was kind of chirpy, and I thought this is, might be some smart aleck making fun of the kind of chirpy, drifty HT37. Clunky. <laughs> yeah, but I wrote it down. And I, I, went, I was scratching my head. And so that went, we went off, we went out briefly, came back, watched the ball drop, went to sleep, blah, 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 New Year's Eve. The next morning I get up and I figure, oh, I better plug this stuff into the log. And I think I was going to do a little online report about straight key night. That's right, I did it on the blog. And then I'm, I'm, I'm reading the call sign and I'm writing down the comment about presence and bang, it occurred to me. The, call, the contact was with Alpha India 4, Sierra Victor. This is our friend Jack, Jack from the Vienna Wireless Society, Jack who's been in contact with us many years, Jack who's in the Foreign Service and was over in um, Antanarivo, Madagascar for years, came back, he's still kind of in the traveling part of things, and man, it was great, so I, I realized that was the guy, he wasn't making fun of me. It was it was a little joke because he had been listening to us talk about yeah. the bogus presence thing. But the thing is, Pete, this shows you that my HT thirty seven has presence uh, even in CW, uh, even in CW. Uh, Any, anyway, that is my uh, my uh, my straight key night story. We had some fun. I made I guess I made about ten contacts. It was it was kind of kind of fun. But uh, enough of the CW. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. Before you run off, I would just like to defend myself a little bit about CW. You don't need, for, no need. I understand. No, no, no. For everybody that has the current issue of Sprat, the current issue of Sprat, the one that came out after with part two of the transceiver in it, look on the front cover. If you look on the front cover, there are two rigs from N6QW. One is a smaller photo of the sudden transceiver but the background picture of the cw transmitter is something i built with a bandpass coupler and if you look in uh, antennas and anecdotes you'll see more about the rig so at one time i did operate cw and i have the rigs to prove it no i on I, the I, front cover of sprat i believe there you, you. There I, you go. I believe you i believe you and I, I i'm with you and i wasn't really really kind of make it funny i because i have gone through the same kind of metamorphosis again away from cw but it, i i i got back in and i i think i've done my annual quotient of cw contacts now it's it's back to phone for another year we're good done been there done that hey uh, i want to talk also about the ht37 because that was a uh, another adventure um 
All right, so I've had this HT37 since, I, I estimate, since 1975. I bought it with newspaper money. People who don't know this thing, it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a fairly big beast. It looks like it's about the size of a large microwave oven. It weighs at least 68 pounds, uh, so it's, it's, it's heavy. It is an HF, SSB, CW, and AM transmitter. An early SDR rig. That's right, in the sense that it's a, a phasing transmitter. Yeah, It yeah. uses the phasing method of sideband generation. And I, I wrote in the Solder Smoke book about how much consternation this caused me as a young ham because I couldn't figure out how the whole phasing scheme worked. It wasn't until years later that I, that I finally figured it out. Um, but I've had this thing. I've, I've always had it paired up with a Drake 2B, and this was my original general class station as a, as a ham. And but but you know I've, not only have I drifted away from CW, you and I I think both have drifted away from tubes and heavy transformers and heavy metal and all that stuff. And so when it when it broke this time, I was tempted to say, hey, this thing it's just been taking up a lot of space on the operating table. I I rarely use it. It's old. It's ugly. It's clunky. It's fallen apart. And so I briefly, I'm ashamed to say took it off the operating table and stuck it back underneath the workbench with the front panel facing the wall. Bad Shame, mojo, shaming bad, and shunning. Bad, bad, bad mojo. Now, ostensibly to protect the controls from damage from my feet kicking it by accident, but it looked bad. It looked forlorn. It looked like a, it looked like a puppy, a much-loved dog that you sent off to the corner. And he's sitting there, kind of whimpering, and I, I felt really bad about it. I really, I didn't realize that I had such an emotional connection to this thing. Also, I started thinking about it. There's a, there's an age, there's another age factor going on here. This rig was built in 1959. Now, if you go back and you estimate how old radio, radio communications is, if you go back and look at the date that Marconi really made the first contacts over there in Bologna. Um, it looks like radio is about 120 years old. Think about that. The human use of radio waves is about 120 years old. This rig is 60 years old. This rig's been around for half the life of radio. Holy cow. <laughs> so, wow, I said the emotional contact, the historic contact, the rig still works. I got to I got to get this thing fixed. So, I moved it over to the, moved it up on top of the workbench, and I started troubleshooting. I, I kind of already knew what the problem was, and and it's it's kind of good to talk about the troubleshooting procedure with a rig like this. Okay, so it lit up, the filaments lit, so it's not the filament part of the power supply, but absolutely no power out, no modulation, no CW when I put the key down, nothing, nothing's coming out of this thing. Now, there are three oscillators inside the rig. You look at the schematic, you realize there's a VFO, there's a carrier oscillator, and there's a heterodyne oscillator in there, right? So for, for new hams or for folks who haven't been in the game, you know, a real simple way to troubleshoot this is if you have a general coverage receiver around and you know what frequency those oscillators are supposed to be on, turn the general coverage receiver on. I have this little Sony receiver. And I just walked it. You don't have to open the rig up because these oscillators are going to be so strong in the shack. You're going to hear it whether the thing is inside the cabinet or not. And I turned it on. The VFO wasn't there. 
the carrier oscillator wasn't there, and the heterodyne oscillator wasn't there. So then you start, it's, it's, it becomes a matter of logical deduction. There's just no way that all three of these stages are simultaneously going to fail because of problems in the stage. So it's something Except that's, for a common problem. It's common, that's right. But what I'm saying is there's no way that they're going to separately fail. You have to look, what do they have in common? What they have in common is the power supply, the low-voltage power supply. So, and, and we know that that was a vulnerability in some of these older rigs. So I went, then you, then you start thinking, okay, maybe the low-voltage rectifier tube went. Nope, I changed the tube, still doesn't work. So then you start looking, okay, then you start just tracing it down. Where, what, what components are in the low-voltage rectifier supply? There's a, 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 a very small number of components. And one thing that would knock this down would be if the low-voltage power supply choke went open. It's just a coil, very fine wires, because they want to try to get a large amount of inductance in a small space and over time they erode they degrade sometimes they if they get some something might cause the thing one of those little wires to open up and sure enough when I checked the low voltage supply that choke was open yeah. now that could be a good that could be a bad problem because getting replacement parts to the HT 37 especially in terms of this big iron is uh, difficult but I went out onto the to, onto the blog and I was I want to thank everybody who wrote back with ideas on how I could get a replacement part, how I might repair the uh, the choke, and uh, and also uh, the the guy who really came through was Steve Murphy and 8NM, who said that he had a junker out in the garage. Those were the magic words I wanted to hear. So Steve went out there on a cold cold day, pulled uh, the he did the uh, the he pulled the, the the extrication of the of the low voltage supply the low voltage choke and he sent it to me and it arrived. But now in the interim, I'm getting this thing is sitting up on my bench. It's taking up most of the bench. The bench is straining under the weight of this thing. So I start thinking, wait a second, let me look at that choke. Could I fix this choke? All kinds of guys wrote in. Kind of some of them were kind of snarky, saying, hey, "You better get wind in. You got to rewind the choke." Well, I'm not going to rewind the choke. It's it's just too much. But I notice when I look at the choke, there are you could see where the fault occurred. It's very close to the to the surface winding. And there's four little wires sticking out at one end and four little wires sticking out the other. And some of them have like burn marks on it. So my thought is that this thing kind of, the maybe the insulation, the paper insulation or the kind of aluminum paper insulation that they had around it deteriorated. And this allowed that outside coil, say on a voltage peak, to arc to the cabinet. And then the, there was a spark, an arc, it burned out. That was what opened up the choke. That's my theory. But now I got four wires on one side, four wires on the other side, and obviously, if I solder them all together, if I solder them to the proper corresponding wire, everything's going to be back to normal, hopefully. But I got to figure out <laughs> which one goes to which. Now, if there's two, you just do it one way if it works, you do it the other way it works. If there's four, that combination gets kind of mathematically exponential. You know what I'm saying? So twenty-four. Right. There you go. 24. He's the engineer. Thank you very much. 24 possibilities. And each one of them requires kind of like microsurgery soldering, right? And then the wires are so old and brittle that as you're doing it, they're breaking, right, which happened once. Wow. I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to get these four to four. So maybe I'll just, you know, wait for Steve Murphy's um, choke to come in. But then, I, you know, you sometimes you just... You're sitting there, you think, I want to get this. I want to see if I can fix this thing, right? So then I figured, wait a second. 
if I just take the four on the one side and solder them all together, and then four on the other side, solder them all together, and then just put like a jumper wire between the two, okay, I've sacrificed what three turns, right? There's still one. Turn no, you won't notice. You won't know it. You wouldn't notice it. There's a zillion yeah. turns in this thing, right? And it might just close up the open problem, which is the real main problem. So I went and I, I did it, and immediately the thing tested no longer open, so it, it closed it. I couldn't test the inductance because my uh, almost all digital electronics LC meter doesn't go that high. It's like something like nine Henrys. Nine Henrys. It's a lot of inductance. But I knew that the, the resistance across the coil should be somewhere in the hundreds of ohms, and I put the ohm meter across it, and it showed hundreds of ohms, which meant that I was in business. I popped it back into the HT37. I kind of repaired the insulation around it so it wouldn't arc over again. And as they say, Bob is your mother's brother. Is Boom. Right? Boom. There it is. It worked. It was a very satisfying repair. Holy cow. I felt, I felt really good about it. Got it back on the air. Um, so, and then, and then a, a couple days later, uh, Steve's replacement uh, choke arrived, looking, I must say, pristine. But it is standing by for the next time this thing goes out. But and if anybody needs one, of course, let me know. But um, man, it was it was a, it was a very satisfying repair, and I and I, I immediately started using the HT thirty seven more than I'd used it before. I, it reminded me of the story of an old old guy I used to know at the Hamfests, and he used to say when he would be looking at an old boat anchor ring at the Hamfest, he would say to the guy, "Does it work?" And if the guy honestly said, "Nah, it doesn't work." He'd say, "Good, I pay extra for that." because <laughs> <laughs> you get that trouble, that that satisfaction of troubleshooting. So, Peter, am I luring you back into uh, vacuum no, tubes? No, but I I was laughing a bit because uh, Steve shared with you that that also solved the problem for him because he went to his wife and said, "Look, I'm getting rid of boat anchor stuff." <laughs> Win-win. Yeah, win, win. there you go. It's almost like a public public service I'm providing here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Steve. All right, so now this kind of, this was good because this kind of launched me on a, a kind of a, almost like a month-long kind of looking around the shack for things I could fix kind of things. And not only that, it made me think, okay, I've built all this stuff. I'm surrounded by rigs that I've built and old boat anchor rigs that I've repaired. Um, but maybe I should just pull some of the other stuff off and check it and tweak it. You know, because the other thing is, as you go on in radio, you learn more. So you look at stuff that you built 10, 15 years ago. You've learned a lot in 10 or 15 years. And you might yes. spot things that you didn't see when you first build it, built it. So I started looking around for other things that I could kind of tinker with and fix and improve. The other thing that's going on is that I'm trying, and I don't know if I'm succeeding, but I'm trying to be a bit more rigorous in kind of testing and evaluating the performances, especially of receivers. I mean, I've got Steve Silverman's uh, magnificent HP signal generator over there, and I find that one of the most useful things that it does is it generates a very stable signal at 130, negative 130 dBm which is sort of the, the spot that Sherwood and others looks at in evaluating the sensitivity of receivers. So I've been taking advantage of that. So every receiver I work on, I plug in via the coax on the back, negative 130 dBm, 
and I see by ear if I can discern the signal. So for me, it's for, according to with my hearing, it's discernible. But anyway, I, I, I get ahead of myself. The first one I looked at was the ceramic DC receiver from last winter. Remember that one? Oh, we, yeah. We were trying to encourage people to build DC receivers, and I made one with a VFO with a ceramic resonator for 40 meters in the in the VFO. I, I pulled that out, and uh, I, I was checking it for sensitivity. Deaf as a doornail. <laughs> Holy cow. This thing was so deaf. I mean, it was testing. I could barely hear negative 100, 100 dBm. So it was wow. 30 dB. Huh? Wow. So I start thinking, wow, what did I do wrong on this thing? Did I mess up the bandpass filter? Did I mess up the? I must have messed up something profoundly. I don't, I don't remember. I, I remember it working fairly well. So I start poking around in there, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking, what could I do? And then as I opened it up, I looked over, and the little wire that I had going to the, the, the pot that's sort of like the RF gain control, the wire from the RF gain control to the input of the bandpass filter has fallen off the pot. It's Ugh. just floating around inside uh, the cabinet, uh, right? Uh, hey, that's wa- a pretty good receiver then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even even without the the, uh, the the antenna connected directly, it was it, it, it with like a six inch antenna inside the cabinet. In effect, it was receiving at negative one hundred dBm. But I uh, but I I went ahead and, and re- made the repair. And then boom, it, now it's at uh, 100. Neg- it'll, it'll discern negative 100 dBm, which was was fun. Yeah, duh. When the wire antenna wires not connect, that's not working too well. All right, I got a couple more to tell you about here because I, I I was having a lot of fun with this. The mate for the mighty midget. This is a blast from the past. I built this thing back in 1998. Tube type rig designed by Lou McCoy, using three 6U8 tubes. Worked okay, but it worked okay on 40, but it was deaf on 75. It's a two-band rig. It has two ganged, two-section variable caps. These caps tune the grid and the plate of the first stage. So you've got this, this ganged, like 365 picofarad cap. And as you tune the preselector, you're tuning both the input and the output of the first stage. So um, this is a great way of knocking down the image because the IF on this thing is at 455 KC. So you need something to knock down the image, which will be 910 kilocycles or kilohertz away. So I just went in there and I realized that I needed to tweak both at both ends of the tuning spectrum of the these two LC circuits. All right. So I need the, the low end was around 3.6, the low end of 80 meters. That had to be tweaked. And then I would swing the capacitor all the way up the other side and tweak it for the high end, like 7.3 megahertz of the, the 40 meter band. And I did that using some of the test equipment, using Steve's uh, signal generator. And, um, and, I, got, and I, got them, I got it tweaked pretty well. I think it's sort of optimized for 40 meters. But it's it works well on 75 now. It's uh, it doesn't have a crystal filter in it because Lumacoy's rig had a crystal filter built with two 455 KC crystals, which I could never find in good enough shape to make a crystal filter out of it. So I have one of these Barker um, and Williamson kind of fancy kind of critical coupling 
LC kind of transformers in there. Right. So it, it's it's bar, broad as a barn door, but really good for AM on 75 and 40. Also for listening to uh, the, the, the shortwave broadcast stations that show up on 40 meters. You know, you, you know, you, you got to make the best of a bad situation. We all complain about these these stations, but it gives you something to listen to on AM, especially China. So CRI, China Radio International, comes blasting in, and I just turn off the BFO and and tune this thing around, and I can hear it hear it quite well. So anyway, I tested the um, the uh, the sensitivity, and it and, and I can hear negative 130 dBm on 40. Only about negative 114 dBm on 75. I'm not quite sure why. It might be just that I, when I tweaked the uh, the tuned circuits, I was tweaking more for 40 than I was for for 75. So anyway, uh, I, I was pleased with that. Made me think of something. I had been sort of um, kind of dismissing 455 KC as an IF. I mean, this is the IF of the All American Five, the IF of our reviled s38 receiver everybody say Um, but but a lot of receivers were built with 455 kc as the if and i had started thinking man that's just no wonder we went for higher ifs it's easier to knock down the image but i realized when i was working on this thing that if you have the right tuned circuits there you can indeed knock down an image that's 910 kcs away it's pretty far away so it, it worked out okay Anyway, I had fun with the wait for the mighty midget. Um, that, that, that's the one built in a Heathkit lunchbox. Yeah, that's the one where I killed a Heathkit, you know, uh, a tour. I sacrificed a tour. Ooh! But it was already in bad shape. It was already yeah. Uh, bad. Okay, that's, 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 that's good. That's the give you dispensation. I, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, the Drake Two B. Okay, so I worked on the HT thirty seven. The, H, the Drake 2B is up there. And I started looking at the Drake 2B thinking, I, I don't think I've ever really done an alignment on this thing. I've had it since 1975. Wow. And there's a strange thing about the 2B. It's a triple conversion receiver. It's very selective. I mean, you can get down to half a KC on CW. You can go down to 100 hertz if you turn on the Q multiplier. But it has no crystal filters in it. The uh, the final IF is at 50 kC, and that's they they use some very high Q tuned circuits at 50 kC to achieve this very astonishingly high level of selectivity. Um, also, because it's an LC circuit at the final filter, it is tunable. So the BFO stays fixed, but you have this passband control on the front panel, and you can shift the entire passband of the filter up and down. And you move it if you want to listen to upper sideband or lower sideband, but you can also play with it a little bit to get rid of QRM or just change the passband, listen to the highs, listen to the lows. But you've got to have it, the, the critical thing with that is you've got to have the knob on the front panel pointing at the right spot, or you, you'll be hopelessly lost. So I started poking around with this, and I, I started thinking, well, maybe the, the oscillator's in there. There's a 50 kC BFO oscillator in there that's really important. And then there's a 405 kC oscillator in there that's important, too. So I turned to the Internet, and the first thing it took me to was our friend, Alan Walkie, W2AEW. And, of course, Alan had several videos. I think he's got three in there on how to work with the 2B. 
And on this particular phase of the alignment, he had a really good video on how to check the 405 KC, the 50 KC, and how to set the, the knob on the passband control on the front panel of the 2B. And, uh, boy, his, his, uh, his video was so useful. I went in there. Here's the, here's a surprising thing is I checked the, um, the placement of the 50 KC and the 405 KC oscillators in the Drake 2B. I, I, I don't think they've been touched since 1975. They were both right on the money. They hadn't moved. They hadn't moved a fraction of a kilocycle. They were right there. I didn't even have to touch them. I tweaked. There was a 455 KC oscillator, a, a transformer in there. I tweaked that a little bit, but I probably didn't even have to. But I knew they were all in the right place. I placed the bandpass switch, and it's it's phenomenal. It's really, really, really great. So I, my, my, my love for the Drake 2B was was reinforced by the whole experience. The, it's extremely sensitive. Wow, the 2B, when I did my little kind of unscientific by-ear sensitivity test, with the, the, with the bandwidth set at 2.6 KCs at the SSB bandwidth, um, I could hear negative 140 dBm. Wow. And then if I... Um, it actually, was, it was even more than that. So I had to throw in additional attenuation beyond the attenuation available on... Steve Silverman's HP signal generator, or, or uh, yeah, I had to, I, th- I threw in, I have a, a couple of external attenuators that uh, Jim AL7RV W8NSA had sent me to throw in an additional amount of attenuation. I could hear all the way down to negative 147 dBm. My God! Without even turning on the Q multiplier, I didn't even try it with um. the Q multiplier. So three cheers for the Drake 2B, and and thank you, Alan for um really letting us uh letting me do those those tests hey um let's see a couple one other thing oh oh this is the one that i'm working on now and this is where i need sage advice from you and from the solder smoke listeners out there um a couple of years ago uh our friend armon down in richmond gave me this magnificent national radio um what's it called, NPW dial and gearbox. It's a tuning box out of the old national, sort of similar to what they had in the HRO receivers. So I like this thing so much that I built a whole receiver around it. I used one of the aluminum boxes that our friend Tim Sutton had sent us. And it looks amazing. I've got lots of pictures of it up on the blog, but it's got this big HRO dial. It's got the little windows with the numbers on it the gearbox behind it and i built up a a little 40 meter receiver using a 455 kcif but i really just built it so i could use the knob so i got the whole receiver running but as part of my review revise and inspect process here this winter put this one on the bench and i took a more critical look at it i mean i you know sometimes when you build a receiver if it works you're like woohoo it works yay i built a receiver but then when you go back again, you start thinking, well, let's, let's see how well it works. It tested as being very, very sensitive, real, real sensitive. Um, down, I could hear down with this one too, I could hear negative 140 dBm. So it's a very sensitive rake. Not really very selective because I got a pretty broad crystal filter in there. And I knew that. The thing that started bothering me though is the, the, the part that really was the basis for the whole project. And that is the, the national PW dial, and more specifically the gearbox behind it. 
Don't think the problem's with the dial. The dial works fine. The problem is that behind the dial, connected to the dial, is a gearbox, which is basically a reduction drive, just like the Jackson Brothers and the veneer dials that we have. But it's a 20 to 1 reduction gearbox. It's a beautiful looking thing. You open up the top, you look into it, it looks like an automotive transmission. One, one writer described it as, as complex as a clock. There's about six or eight different gears in there. All right. Here's the problem. The whole thing was designed to provide really accurate frequency readout on the front panel of the receiver. And so you've got these numbers that click as you turn it, and then you've got these hash marks a quarter of an inch apart. There's 50 of them around the dial. And it's supposed to provide for reproducible, in other words... Resettable. Resettable. So in other words, if you're listening to a signal at 7.201 and you, you know where it is on the dial, you come back the next day, you spin the dial around, you, you set it at 7.201 and it's supposed to be right there. Problem is it's not. All right? It's close. But when I do that, when I have a signal, say, from the signal generator and I zero beat it and I say, okay, that's where this signal appears in the dial. The, my oscillator is stable. The oscillator is not moving. That's not the problem. Because i got a frequency counter on the oscillator, too, so I'm watching the oscillator. The oscillator is not moving, and the signal source, the HP signal generator, that's not moving. When I turn the dial, I, I zero beat it, I go up to the top of the band, I go to the bottom band, I go back, I can be as much as one or one and a half of these hash marks away from where it's supposed to be. And it's not supposed to work that way. It's supposed to put you right there, right? This is micro, I think what they referred to as micrometer accuracy. The whole purpose of building this thing was to provide this really accurate, you know, frequency readout. So I've been sort of pulling my hair out on a mechanical problem. I mean, James Millen was a mechanical engineer. That's why he built this thing. And I have still not yet figured it out. Now, a couple ideas come up. One, somebody said, you know, you got to have it. You have to have tension on the gears, and there's a because that'll that'll prevent backlash. It'll keep the gears tight. I've got it plenty tight. The, the gears are fully meshed. It's not like they're floating around, you know, kind of loose there. The problem really is, though, Pete, that it, that and I, I I I grabbed the kind of the output shaft that's supposed to turn the variable capacitor, and I just held it steady with a with a set of pliers. So that's not moving anywhere, and I, and so. Really, what should happen is the dial should not move either, right? It should be locked, but it's not. With the shaft not moving at all, I can wiggle that tuning dial up and down about one or two of these hash marks. So I think that's what's happening. Now, I don't know. Here's a couple of theories. I don't know whether this is a function of age. I mean, these this dial, this device that I'm working with is about 70 years old, right, or older, but the gears look like they're in pretty good shape, so I don't think that's it. It, Or it may be that when they were designing these things back in the 30s and 40s, it was close enough because the oscillators that they were working with were drifting. They didn't have the frequency counters that we have now. What do you think? Well, um, I see a couple of things to, to ponder. First of let me ask you about your variable capacitor. Mm. Is it single bearing or double bearing? It's single bearing. 
It's one okay. of these. It's one of these old Jackson. It's 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 a pretty quality variable cap. Yeah, but you, when you read about this predates Doug DeBaugh. Yeah. You read about VFOs, they say don't make a VFO with a single bearing capacitor. I know you said that, but I've never. But here's the thing. I've never even come across one with double bearings, right? So, oh yeah. I, but 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 I mean, all the all the VFOs that I've built have been oh. like single bearing, and but I've never ri- had this problem. But the original, mm. if you look at the original HRO, mm-hmm. has a double bearing capacitor in. It. Okay, yeah. so uh, what I'm trying to say is maybe cumulative things that are involved here. Yeah. So you know you've got this very precision thing on the front end, but not so precision on the back end. So oh, if yeah, you right, yeah. You, if you can try to find a double bearing capacitor, then you might might eliminate that as a possibility. The second thing is, one thing you haven't accounted for is where. Yeah, oh, that's what I was saying. It could, it could be wearing down. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, there there's even though it's the precision when it was first built. I mean, these things. Did anybody envision they'd be around for seventy years, or did no one say, "Hey, in seventy years we'll have something new"? So you you may have some some wear issues even though you have all this precision i'd I'd certainly look at that and and the interface the coupling to the capacitor is is that good and tight yeah it's very tight i've checked on that it's it's okay so i mean you're right it's a mechanical issue so you need to you know like when you're doing electrical analysis you look at all of the various things but i'd i'd look at the double bearing capacitor and also look at the wear i mean the fact that you could hold it and move it it's telling me there's yeah, it shouldn't be doing that right it should be doing that right there's, there's it's not so much backlash as that there's play in it i guess the way yeah. you describe it there's yeah. a lot of play it's kind of loose you know it's kind of floating around in there yeah. but here, here's a couple of things i know some guys are saying hey wait a second that hro receiver that millen and national made that was the the, the receiver that really won world war ii yes and they're right and especially in the UK, I read that the U- in the UK, GCHQ, which was doing the listening operations, using a lot of radio amateurs, by the way, the Y stations, they were using the HRO receiver. They had, at the end, more than 10,000 of them over there. Wow. Yeah. And the reason it was so useful, and they used them at Bletchley Park and other places too, was because if you're doing that kind of work, you need resetability you need to go back to precisely yep. at that frequency that you were listening to yesterday right and the hro i think the real attraction that it had was that it allowed you to do that but here's the thing and i was talking to dave richards a a7 ee he was he he was the one he gave me some advice on this he's he was working on these receivers with his uh, with some of his regens with these these tuning devices and uh Anyway, he um, he said, and he pointed out, that the HRO, the famed HRO receivers, were not really using the same kind of gearbox. This gearbox is what they call NPW. That means not, pan- not, par- not parallel with the front panel, right? Not parallel worm drive. Because the, the, the HROs, had you, the shaft would go into it, and then two shafts would come off parallel to the front panel and it would drive a whole big bank of capacitors on either side of the gearbox this one just goes straight in and then there's one shaft coming straight out the back and it's much more of a traditional kind of reduction drive that we're used to in ham radio 
but this wasn't used in the HRO. I, as far as I could tell, this thing was used in the NC100 and the NC200, which came out a bit later, like late in the war or after the war. So um, anyway, I, I, I do agree that it, it might be a wear thing, but I don't, I, don't, I don't really know if there's any way to, to fix it. Have you contacted Boston Gearworks? Boston Gearworks? See, wow, no, I have not. I that's that's who made that gearbox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they might ha- they might have a drawing in a bolt somewhere, or no. they'll have a guy, some guy hanging around here saying, "You know what? We all had this problem. This is how we fixed." But it's a Boston gear. Or work. there might be some little company out there that specializes in replacing the gears. Yeah, Boston Gearworks. <laughs> Please, someone tell me that this is true. Boston Gearworks. Yeah. Be- because I'll tell you what, Armand and others, rest easy. I'm going to leave this thing in there no matter what because it looks so cool, and the whole purpose of the receiver was to use this gearbox. But it would be nice to get it kind of squared away. All right, that, that concludes. Or my... you could use an SI-53 oh! <laughs> and, oh! and put it right back on there. Down well, to 100 hertz. Almost, Resettable no, no. every time. Almost as bad. Almost as bad, I admit. I, I had thought about that. I had thought about using the gearbox to drive the rotary encoder. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but then even worse, I thought, well, if the if the problem is really the frequency readout, how about I get one of those little Sanjan yeah. um, frequency counters and just put it on the front panel? Yeah, there you go. A little too weird. Too weird for me, Pete. No way. Uh-uh. Um, anyway, uh, so the shack is now, like I said, back vacuum tubed. Gosh, we're running out of time here, and you've got to get going. Um, but... Um, I put up some old QSL cards on the wall. I got a picture of that up on the blog. Yeah, neat. What is this transceiver in a bottle thing? Tell us about that. He's going to okay. put it out now to show me. It's a bottle. And it's, wow, it's a fantastic looking thing. Yeah. I'm going to put this up on the blog for this show. People have got hey, to see this. There thing. you go. How did you okay. do this? Tell us about this. Well, how it happened is I was in Costco uh, right before Thanksgiving uh, doing some shopping and and this is actually a bottle of candy. There was candies in there, and it has a screw-off base. So I said, oh, yeah, and, and actually there it's candy made in Belgium, and it's chocolate-infused with champagne. I said, oh, that ought to taste pretty good. So I grabbed the bottle, and when I pulled the bottle out, I said, this is a plastic bottle. I said, man, what could I do with this? <laughs> I, I had always thought about building a radio in a bottle, and, and suddenly – the radio gods have spoken. There it was in front of me in Costco. So I said, "Okay, let me uh, let me see what I can do." So I I took an assembly and 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 a lot of it, most of it, Bill was mechanical engineering, not, not electrical engineering. Well, I, I didn't I didn't know that bit about the the, the bottom coming off because I thought you <laughs> yeah. had built this like the way they did the old <laughs> no, ships, you know? No, no. And I was saying, how did he get that Arduino in there? <laughs> no, no, no. The bottom comes off. So it just bottom comes off and it just slips out so and the the lexan material that they made the bottle out is very easy to work as a matter of fact uh i sent a uh, email to the candy company in belgium <laughs> i said candy was good but the bottle's even better and i got an email back and the guy says hey that is really cool you know so i wonder how many of these bottles now are being used for ships and other kinds of things if they start using this in an advertisement campaign you better get a cut yeah yeah you better get a piece of the action that well, belgian well, champagne candy stuff yeah, one other thing, and I'll just uh, put it up here. Uh, you can only put so much in the bottle. So the the transceiver by itself will put out microwatts. Uh-huh. 
uh-huh. by itself. So you had to had to get the power, and you can't you couldn't get couldn't get everything in there. So I came up with this really neat module, Bill. that has only two connections, uh, which is a uh, coax and power. I thought it was going to be like a cork. No, 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 no. <laughs> so anyway, this this whole module here will take microwatts and produce five watts. So I mean, this also was. Uh, this whole concept, too, was further spurred on by my continued watching of the Velocity Channel, now Motor Trend. These guys, <laughs> these guys, they do things. By the way, I got to tell you something. I, I know nothing about cars. I wouldn't know. I would know a spark plug from a 710 cap. You know what a 710 cap is, right? You know more than me. 710. You don't know what a 710. It's the blonde says she has a problem with the 710 cap, and if you turn 710 around, it says oil. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> so I wouldn't know a spark plug, but these guys are so creative, and I've been going around my shop looking at bits and pieces of metal, and I said, how can I use it? And this is all scrap materials. I mean, you know, just scrap metal that you can do. All right, but 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 when you've been watching the Velocity Channel for a while, I got to clue you in on something. You might be aware of this. This goes back to Orange County Choppers. Yeah, yeah. Toodles. You don't make anything. You fabricate it. Fabricate it, yes. You fabricate it. It yes. sounds much nicer, yes. doesn't it? Yes. So you fabricated that rig. Yes. You're well, a fabricator. Last, last night I was watching this show called West Coast Custom. Oh, I was he, watching that too. Burbank, the Justin Bieber. Well, no, I was <laughs> they, they, they had Shaq O'Neal on there. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal. They got this. They took this Cadillac Escalade and they they did this whole thing. They changed the door from a normal door to a left suicide door. I mean, I, so, I feel bad, Pete. I've, I've sent you down this time sink. But you you can pick up so many things. So I, I'm encouraging all amateurs to look at that show. Not for the not for the con, concept of the cars, although they may be into cars, but how these guys do things and how they take. We common, need a channel. We need a ham radio channel. With yeah, you, there you, you in there it. All there right. you go. You, you'd be the leader. There you go. But anyway, radio in the bottle. I've made contacts with it. It really does work, and it's just something you can put on a shelf and say, "Yeah, it's a radio in the bottle." You've seen a rig in the bottle. This is a radio in the bottle. You're gonna blow people's mind, man. You start telling them that your rig's in a bottle, they're gonna start yeah. thinking, "Oh, that'll, that'll yeah. just blow their minds." Yeah. Hey, it's time for Shameless Commerce Division. You know, uh, please. Jeff Bezos has been in the news. <laughs> that poor guy. <laughs> well, I know, I know, but. But he could still, he's still got a few, he's still got enough money to send some money Solder Smoke's way. So when you think of buying something, think of Bezos and, and then think of the ad in the upper right hand corner of the Solder Smoke blog page. Because if you begin your search there, cha-ching, Bezos is going to send us some money. And uh, it's, it's very, it's an easy way to contribute. Can you that, imagine his ex-wife running off with 50 billion? Well, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> God. Wow, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, um, that's so. Let's we get through Shameless Commerce Division real quick. I want to give a movie review real quick. Um, I, we talked about this a while back when the when the when the uh, when the trailers first came out. The movie about Neil Armstrong going to the moon, First Man, with Ryan Gosling. Uh, it's now available on some of the streaming services. We saw it on um, on. Uh, on Prime, Amazon Prime, um, good movie. Not really our kind of tech movie because it was mostly focused on the personal family, kind of family stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it wasn't like The Martian. I mean, when you watch The Martian movie, 
that was our kind of movie. The Martian yeah! got five soldering irons. Yeah. That's yeah. a prestigious yeah. award. That's yeah. like the Academy Award for solder yeah. smoke. Um, but the first man, I give it three soldering irons. It was it's okay. It's a semi, semi-chick flick. You, you said it, Pete. That's right. It's, <laughs> have you seen it? Did no, it? Uh, that's that's kind of what it is. It go, yeah, it, yeah. You know, it's 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 a good movie to take your spouse to it because she'll like it, right? And it's it's interesting. It's about the space program. It's okay. It's a chick flick. <laughs> Three soldering irons. All right, safety tips for 2019. I'm sure you've got a few, but I want to I want to throw this out, and this is related to something that you've been telling people about on on the uh, the Bidex uh, mailing list, and some of them are not paying attention. Check the fuses in your rigs. Each one of the rigs, especially the commercial rigs, but even the homebrew rigs, you should think about what level of fuse. When do you want that thing to shut down? How much current? What you should do is basically, well, follow the guidance on that the manufacturer's guidance on your rig. So, for example, my HT37, the manufacturer recommended a 4-amp slow-blow fuse. I ordered them. I got them. It's in there, 4-amp slow-blow. Now, why is that important? Because if you put an 8-amp fuse in there, sure, it'll shut down if there's a, a direct fault, but so much current will be pulled through there in the meantime that you're liable to smoke your transformer, your chokes, and maybe even your house because you're going to start a fire. Whereas if you had the proper one in there, it, the whole thing would shut down before any of the major components, hopefully, are damaged and before the thing goes on fire. So, And, and also when, on your homebrew rigs, I mean, you you gotta you, we all we always talk about reverse polarity protection. That'll shut down pretty quick, but you don't want to put an eight amp fuse in that thing if the if the rig is only going to be pulling max one amp. You know, it should be pretty close. You got to ask yourself at what point do I want this thing to shut down, and how much current should I be pulling through this thing before the fuse blows, right? Or to quote the microbitex poster, I always put four amps in there. <laughs> yeah, that way it'll never blow, right? Yeah, right. Or <laughs> okay. Why don't you just put a piece of wire, man? <laughs> cool. Yeah, with such authority. Drive, drive on you. I always put a four <laughs> amp in there, yeah. Um, here's the other thing. When you talked about this last time, back up your hard drives. Yeah. Because the end of the hard drive in your computer is coming, and I've been remiss in this, but I went out, and Amazon will sell you a two-terabyte Wow. terabyte drive it's a it's slightly larger than a pack of cigarettes it plugs into the usb connector you use the, the the utility right there in windows windows backup let it run overnight and it creates a complete mirror image of your computer hard drive that you could stash away someplace uh, and so that's i think finally the last bit of advice uh, and we don't want to get preachy here but get your flu shot <laughs> Because I don't know if you've been watching the news, but flu is really, they've got seven and a half million victims in the United States so far. It's not too late. Get down to CVS. They'll give it to you for free. Or one of the hard, one of the, one get of the. Get a shingle shot, there. too, if you can get the serum. Can't get it. That's what they're hard to I get. I know. I'm, yeah, they're hard to get. They're hard to, uh, they're hard to get. That's a good idea, though, too. Shinglix. They say there's going to be more of it in February. 90% effective. That's our public service announcement today. Mailbag. Pete, I've got to get you out of here. Um, you got some great email. And I figured out who it was from. It was a guy who sent you a video of a fellow who built your sudden transceiver. Oh, okay. That's, sudden. You said LBS, and I'm scratching my head. I know, head. I know. Well, I got confused. <laughs> I got confused. You remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but it's uh, but somebody built Pete's sudden receiver. It's Dave Lucas. Jesus yes. AJW built a yeah. beautiful version of it. Sent us one of these great videos that we like with the rig kind of spread out. It's got that color, cool color display. The display's on its side. You gotta. You oh gotta man, turn, but it was. You gotta turn your head to look at. Great stuff. And he put his call sign in there too. Oh, very nice. Very he followed nice. the follow the instructions. <laughs> oh man, he followed the instructions. Uh, we got some, we've been getting lots of great email from our buddy Steve, N8NM, lots of good mail, and he sent me the HD37 Transformer. He also sent us a, a, a kind of a, a, a very kind of, well, the title of the email was Radio Porn. Yeah. And, and it was like workbench stuff. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. We know what you're talking about, Steve. Um, Roger, KJ6ETL, also known as Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu, is setting up a new shack out there in, in California. And as the, the the refurbishment has been done, as the landscaping has been done, as the tree work has been done, he has done every stage of this project with ham radio in mind. Large pieces of metal have been buried in the backyard for grounding. Excellent. The tree guys go up to trim the trees. He has them put pulleys up in the top of those tall California palm trees. Um, as the house was being rewired, lots of Cat 5 and coax going behind those walls. Good thinking there, Rogier. Good luck with the new shack. Did, did, did he did he put the upper upper power on the microbitics? He was going to put twenty four volts, and he was a little worried about the heat sink. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think he his uh, the ham radio stuff got kind of sidelined by the move, but I'm sure he'll yeah. get back to it. But it's always, it was great to hear from Rogier. Another guy was great to hear from. I mentioned him frequently here. Jim AL seven RV. His current call sign is W eight NSA. A real old-timer, fellow Vietnam veteran, Southeast Asia veteran, but been in radio, the radio game for a long time, a lot of good instincts, a lot of good good real building talents. He's building parasets. These are the uh, the, the sets that, uh, that you know, the uh, he's rolling his eyes because they're tubes. But uh, he's No, built... it's a regen receiver <laughs> with two 6SK7s they look, and 6V6. It, it looks cool. It looks really cool. They sit you behind enemy lines with a regen receiver, right? <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, that'd be fun. <laughs> you talk about resetability of frequency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he's building one. And also, he's got this cool technique where he builds a device, even a piece of test gear. Then he, he, he miniaturizes the, the schematic, puts it on the outside of the box, and has this special glue and varnish. So it, it kind of embeds the schematic in the box. So you pick up the device six months later, and you think, what the heck is this? You've got the schematic on the box. Very neat. Thanks for that idea there, um, uh, uh, Jim. And he's also, he built a Sprouty, talking about regents. He, he, he built one of... Um, Dave's. Yeah, one of one of one of Dave's uh, Sprouties, and he's using it in, instead of his transoceanic. He must like the Sprouty a lot because that transoceanic emotional ties went to Vietnam with him. All right, um, oh yeah, Dave A A seven E E. He's got a cool project, and I put this up on the blog. He came up with a beacon for like thirteen point something megahertz. It's it's like a part fifteen beacon. It's outside the ham bands. But the power level is so low that you're allowed to do it. So it's a beacon that sends CW. He's got it powered by a solar panel, so it only transmits from like his balcony into a dipole when the sun is hitting it. And he's he's located, I think, in the Bay Area in California. So uh, he's asked people to listen for it. You'll find details on the Solder Smoke blog. Check it out. He is uh, 
he's really trying to get some, somebody to hear this little beacon. Well, one of, one of the things that crossed my mind, you know that frequency is called the sputtering frequency. They use that in the semiconductor manufacturing. This is what they use, heavy-duty RF power amplifiers operating that frequency to sputter material on, on semiconductor dye. So you, he might be hearing something if you're in the Bay Area, but his lab will be semiconductor manufacturing plants. Are you so, listening to this, Dave? Are you listening? Yeah, yeah. Listen, listen to Pete Giuliano. He knows what he's talking about. So yeah. you might want to. Reach- but I mean, I, I, with that, since I saw that frequency, I said, "Oh, that's the sputtering frequency." Man, I, we, I didn't know that. I don't know if Dave knew that, so we might yeah. have to rethink the frequency. But take a listen to see if you can hear Dave's HF, uh, high for a beacon. And thanks, Dave, also for the great advice. He's been commiserating with me on the uh, the national gearbox and drive problem. And thanks also to Armand for sending me that thing because it's, it's been real. It's kind of a fun adventure. We got some nice email from Jan, OM2ATC in Slovakia. He came up with a Slovakian SI5351 VFO. And he did a really detailed page on both the hardware side of it and the software side of it. Very well done. Anybody who's thinking about doing one of these projects, take a look at what Jan has there. Some great ideas, and it'll uh, kind of kind of straighten things out for you. Uh, Bruce, KC1FSZ, he has uh, built a, another homebrew version of the Bidex. He's also putting it in the peppermint. Um, Put it in the bottle! Oh, no. <laughs> He's got it in the peppermint box. He doesn't have it in the alcoholic chocolate box or the alcohol chocolate box. But he he mentioned something that I had missed. So much wisdom comes from Allison, KB1GMX, a real wizard. Uh, Allison comes up with great ideas. You know, we built so many amplifiers with the IRF 510, and the problem we always face with our amplifiers is that they want to be oscillators. One of the ways to prevent them from doing that is to to keep the inputs away from the outputs, keep the gazintas away from the gazoutas, right? Hard to do sometimes with the, when the device is like an IRF 510 and you got three pins right next to each other sitting there, right? But the idea is take that drain pin coming out of the IRF 510 and just chop that thing right off, right at the base. Because the tab on the top is also connected to the drain, right? Then cut yourself out a little isolation pad on the board, hook it up there, and Bob's your uncle. And by cutting off that pin, you've moved the input... And the output, you know, at least, you know, half an inch or so away from each other. And it might help with stability. So thanks for that, Allison, and thanks for passing that on, uh, Bruce. Um, Ryan, W7RLF, homebrewed at DC Receiver, and sent us the, the results. Ryan, welcome to the elite ranks of homebrew receiver builders. There aren't many hams out there who have actually built <clears throat> a useful receiver. So thanks for that. Now, but Ryan, you, you talked about jumping from that project right to a single sideband transceiver. My advice, slow down, my friend, one step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I think your next project probably should be a double sideband transceiver. You've got, you've got a lot of the works right there already done in the DC receiver, the direct conversion receiver. Not hard to convert that thing into a double sideband transceiver. Uh, I, that's that's the path I took. It helped me, so um, you might want to consider doing that. You know, I'm gonna send him an email to uh, look up Peter Parker. Uh, Peter, some, uh, another wizard down there in yeah, Melbourne. He, he, and Melbourne, he Australia. he's built he's built uh, what three or four? 
Yeah, yeah. He, Double he, sideband transceivers. Great idea. Great idea. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, his videos are so good because you can see how it's all done. It's got the schematics and everything. So I, I was going to send him a note, and I, I forgot to do that. But anyway, that that's the first thought come to my mind. Check Peter Parker out. Check it out. Always always, always good advice. Hey, I, I don't. We don't have too much more in the mailbag, and you got to get out of here, Pete, because you have duties. Pete, Pete has some serious responsibilities here on. Yes, Sunday. Sunday. Cooking. Yes. Pasta Pete goes Pasta swings Pete. into his other life, his other identity. Yes. He puts on that <laughs> chef hat. Yes. Yes. By the way, I found an ad for the beret. I'm going to send you an ad for the beret. <laughs> um, uh, I think you've started a bit of a craze around the world. But before we go, August K5 HCT. Here comes Texas. Pete and I have been talking to to August, mostly on twenty meters, I think, or seven. He's now on forty. He hangs out in forty now. Now I'm working him on forty. Yeah. I, I don't know if you talked to him on forty. I think you've heard yeah. him too. He's got yeah. this wonderful yeah. voice, August from Odessa. And he's a great guy, a lot of radio experience. And I, I I was tuned across forty meters the other day, and I heard him there, and I said, "Wow!" gave him gave him a call, and that was that was great fun. I, I've been listening on the AM frequencies. One thing I want to mention, a guy who is, I guess, one of the most well-known radio amateurs alive today is Tim, WA1HLR. Um, and Tim, he's got a lot of expertise in AM transmitters, shortwave transmitters in general. And he was on the other day, and I was listening, and he talked about a project really caught my attention. He has found, I think at a ham fest or through somebody he knew, the one of the first transmitters that he ever built am transmitters he built it in 1968 wow and this guy still had it he got it back from him so now wow. he's he's refurbishing the thing and one of the things he mentioned was you know when he built it back in 1968 as a kid he didn't pay a whole lot of attention to safety and things like that but now he's fixing it up and he's putting in you know a grounded power cord i imagine fuses all those niceties that we skipped past when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah sure. <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting project. So good luck to that, uh, Tim. And hey, I heard something yesterday uh, might interest you. There's a big AM group meeting on 1915 kilohertz, 160 meters. Yeah. And they, they were talking about some guy has got an AM transmitter from 1927. It's a Westinghouse, and he lights that thing off. <laughs> so you talk about safety. I mean, I wonder. Let's say that thing was all open. You know, Man, that was that was really early. I, I don't. I think radio. I think AM radio broadcasting in the United States, if I'm not mistaken, seven started, or eight years by started, then. I thought it's like started like 1925. KDKA yeah, and all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 1927. He he puts it on, and quite a few guys have commercial AM transmitters that they put on 1915 kilohertz. Wow, excellent. I have to listen for him. Pete, you got to go. Yeah, I got to go. Well, listen, seven threes from the left coast. We're having a little rain here all week long. I mean, we're going to get the arc out. <laughs> I mean, it's it's that kind of thing. You 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 got snow, so you got uh, about. Five, we get, six we, we, I'm looking right now. We look like about four or five inches out there. No big deal. It's Sunday. What the heck? Well, I was I was thinking about my former home in St. Louis. Fifteen inches. Oh man, you made a smart move. Fifteen inches, yeah. Southern California. That's a place. You, that's a place you retire from, not to. Anyway, <laughs> seven threes from the left coast, Bill. Take care. Seven threes from Northern Virginia. Seven threes, everybody. Thanks a lot, Pete. Bye bye. Bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. 
The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!